0: This episode is brought to you by Borderless. Paying and managing remote workers can be a difficult task for companies. With the shift to remote work, companies are hiring talent from all over the world. But once they bring on that engineer from Turkey or Mexico, they quickly realize the challenges of paying them on on an ongoing basis and managing them effectively. There are various issues that companies have to tackle such as foreign exchange fees, delays in cross-border payments, managing invoices and trying to stay compliant with local laws. These complications can cause headaches and wasted time for companies, as they have to navigate a complex and ever-changing landscape of regulations and compliance. The process of paying and managing remote workers can be time-consuming, costly, and difficult to keep up with. It can also be a major distraction from the company's core business operations. That's where Borderless comes in. Their extensive experience in worker payments and contractor management has simplified this process for companies. They take away all the complexity of managing international contractors, allowing companies to put their contractor or employee on their platform and handle everything else. They take care of paying global workers and drafting local compliant contracts, so companies can focus on what they do best. They also include the communication, task management, and compliance. And the best part, Borderless offers real-time payment to contractors in over 150 countries across the world, allowing contractors to access their funds quickly and easily. Their SaaS business model offers competitive pricing, with a monthly fee of $39 per contractor or $399 per employee. Don't let managing remote workers hold you back any longer. Let Look Borderless be your global workforce management solution at HireBorderless.com. That's HireBorderless.com. Hello, and welcome everyone. I am Evan McCann, and this is The Hard Part. This show is a deep dive into the strategies, founding stories, and behind the scenes insights from Canada's top founders, investors, and leaders. My guest today is Daniel Eberhard. Daniel is the founder of Coho. Coho is a fintech company rooted in the belief that better financial solutions for all Canadians exist. In this episode, we discuss Daniel's early days starting a renewable energy company, why he's focused on helping Canada's underbanked, and his views on building a great team. Please enjoy my conversation with Daniel Eberhardt. Daniel, I'd really like to start with your time at MRU. You actually co-founded a renewable energy company company just started as like a project at university how did that all go and then you ultimately were ended up getting acquired
1: yeah so i um i had a friend who had graduated a year before me he was the ceo and uh i was thinking about what i wanted to do Ho- hopefully kind of the through line of my career is uh you know is being useful at scale like it's, it's that simple um and i you know in university, my friend had, was looking at this space. So my class project was like for my entrepreneurship class. You want to like go to a painting company. And so I ended up connecting with this friend and we like built a, you know, a business plan, which is what you did back then, which was a 50 or 60 page document that you immediately throw out as soon as reality hits your business. Um, but that was, you know, what we did. And uh, and we thought, look, there might be something here. Um, and so, yeah, I ended up moving to Saskatchewan and the original vision was like, decentralized wind energy. So these were kind of hundred, hundred and twenty thousand dollars 120000 uh, units that we would sell to farmers. And um, so I've been in like every town in Southern Saskatchewan, we would like put out milk and cookies and uh, like try and get them to buy turbines from us. And they almost always said no. Um, and then through that, we got into industrial scale wind farm development. And that's, um, we can tell that story if, and go in there if you want. But ultimately, yeah, that was kind of the business and the asset that ended up getting acquired
0: later on. What was that experience like? Was that one of your first kind of entrepreneurial things or did you have, you know, like yeah. a lemonade stand as a kid? Like what really got you interested in being a founder?
1: Look, so no, I think it was a couple things. Like I think, um I think. I was lucky to have exposure to a friend who was like thinking about starting a business for sure. Like, I think it's really easy to rewrite these founder myths and say like it was always predestined, but I, I, I don't believe that's the case. Um, I think part of it was like, honestly, what was happening was I was interviewing for jobs while going to school in Calgary. And the idea of being like a logistics manager at Husky oil was terrifying. Like it just seemed awful. Um, I think one of the things that like is maybe that I kind of anchored to is like There's massive externalities that inform like the trajectory of a career and like you can go do the safe thing and still not get the outcome you want and so i was always like i'd much rather control my destiny rather than this person who is a husky oil supply chain middle manager not that there's anything wrong with that person but it just like did not seem interesting or engaging to me and like didn't seem like i could actually control my own outcomes which was putting a lot of trust in that person so, um, look, I, I had a friend who was starting a business, which kind of brought me into that, that world. Um, but also just the idea of getting a job, like a non-starter.
0: And ultimately you, you end up through an acquisition there. Did you, did you want to stay on with that company? Like, did you kind of take a break after that? Like, I guess what was, you know, you, you originally sure. started it and then how did you end up at Coho? Was, was that kind of a wild journey or was it kind of a straight line no it was a it was a i mean they're they're connected but it was definitely a bit of a
1: journey so you know like the wind energy company we there was this small wind cap program and small meant you know 10 megawatts in size which is broadly 25 million dollars to build and the big wind energy companies were largely neglecting this one because they thought that there was a larger program and they were all going to put their resources into that and so we kind of just saw this as like an an asset that we could kind of are in some arbitrage in some ways. And so, um, you know, but so the, the kind of three criteria were this, where you had to have land, you had to have a $25,000 application check per, and then you had to have the engineering diagrams done. And so what we did was we went to, it ended up being a turbine manufacturer called Entercon. We said, Hey, we think that we can win one or two of these contract developments, um, we can't afford the engineering diagrams, but if you do the engineering diagrams for us, we'll use your turbines. And so Enercon was able to do the engineering diagrams for us. We used to have these town hall meetings where I would try and sell people wind turbines and they would say, no, but if we were like, hey, can we rent lease your land for 50 bucks and then conditional upon this winning, you'll get a 2% royalty check in perpetuity on this wind turbine, um, can we do that? And then all of a sudden they started saying yes. So we started locking up a bunch of land. And then the final thing was a $25,000 check and it was like, is certified, which means you can't just have, you have to have $25,000 per application. And so, you know, talking to the government, we're like, how many applications do you think you're going to get? And they were like, maybe 10. And so we went out and we raised half a million dollars for three weeks and we just flooded this thing with applications that we just borrowed. We didn't own the money. We just borrowed it for three weeks so that we could have the applications. And then whichever one's won, we would obviously take that money because we had you know, and then all the other money would go back. Um, and so we kind of game this thing (laughs) and we put in two thirds of the applications that year and ended up winning two of the contracts. So to answer your question in this rather long winded way, at that point we had like contracts to build the wind farm, but we were two people and we're like, you know, it's going to be three to five years to build this thing. And then you have the government. And so what we did was we just liquidated it at that point and said, look, these are ready, go put a shovel in the ground and like build it, contracts are there. Here's your 20 year power purchase agreement, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, uh, and off to the races. So like, you know, hard work, but also fortunate a couple of ways that that impacted, there's probably kind of three offshoots here. One is like, um, after that I went traveling. Uh, and so all in all, I've spent about two years of my life kind of like living abroad or backpacking or something like that. And so that's kind of what I did next um i came back and i started a a flare gas capture company so i was trying to like take the same playbook and i don't know if you ever you should you should or your listeners should go look at a photo it's on google of north dakota at night and north dakota at night looks like new york because all of the flare gas fracking is like a waste byproduct of that is gas natural gas but also often toxic gas so they just set it on fire and so like north dakota at night looks like new york from space it's amazing and so we're like can we capture this byproduct convert it into liquefied natural gas or protein or butane or butane or whatever these things are um and build a business and so you know i was do pursued that for probably a year I was raising money um and then the ec- the whole kind of government had changed and what went from a economically viable product because of the government subsidies was killed when the new government came in and took place in Saskatchewan. And so like, look, we got lucky on the first one, arguably unlucky on that one, but it taught me a very valuable lesson, which is like coming back to probably this, this theme, but like, i want to control my own outcomes. And this is like, I, that means like, I want to build the product and the company and not have it be reliant on a, a government program or a government subsidy to like, because those things change. And so you can do everything right and lose, you know what I mean? Um, and so. That, and then following that though, I, you know, with the sale of the transaction of the company, I had come into capital for a little bit, for a little bit of capital for the first time in my life. So grew up to a a single mom in Windermere and she, you know, worked very hard. She drove buses, she cleaned houses, she was, you know, did all of the things to give us a wonderful middle-class life, but she had to work very hard for those things and we saw that as kids. And then as I came into capital. And I started recognizing that I think that there is an enormous difference in outcomes predicated on being in a great financial product versus a garbage one. And my mom was in garbage ones. She was in products that meant that she was going to retire with 30, 40, 50% less money. And like, there's just a lot of daylight there for me between how hard this woman had worked and the amount of value that was being extracted. And so that kind of put me on the path to Coho, which is like, can you give everybody a great financial foundation can you democratize access to the best financial products which is how we talk about it internally and in doing so i think that that's actually an enormously valuable business um so that's again probably a long answer but it's like it, it kind of tied those three things together i think um have tied into to uh
0: what is now coho so that's a really interesting kind of backstory there with kind of that emotional like firsthand experience as well as you know you've had some entrepreneurial experiences one working one not so work and one turning out not so good I guess uh, how do you that's interesting like the idea of Coho and like where that came from but ultimately you kind of like been working in the the energy space but in Saskatchewan rural Saskatchewan how do you end up like shifting gears and starting, you know, one of the largest challenger banks in Canada? Like how did you originally start that business?
1: Yeah. I mean, so the reason that I actually, and I'm probably just a slow learner, but like I actually left that world because I wanted to build a tech-based company because I wanted to like not deal with regulation and just like be able to go build a product unfettered that was not reliant on these kind of dimensions. Um, And, uh, and ended up, through this kind of natural organic process, recognizing that there was probably a lot of good work to be done in this fintech vertical and consumer banking, um, and, you know, have had some experience in navigating the the regulatory world, but like, like the, the truth is like there, there was it wasn't like some master plan or intentional design. It was, you know, I think that there was an opportunity that I wanted to go after. And like, you know, the, the, the way that I kind of frame some of this stuff is like because so many things can go haywire sideways in building a business or a career or whatever, like the one, there's only two variables that you can control. You can control, are you proud of the work that you do it with? Uh, Are you proud of the work that you do, excuse me? And are you proud of the people that you do it with? And like, you might win or not win across those dimensions, but those things you have perfect control over. And so like, that is kind of what I wanted to index around. And so that led me to the place of Coho rather than like Coho backwards, if that makes
0: sense. So so that kind of thought about, you know, working with people that you really want to work with. Was that something that kind of like, is that how Coho originally started? Were you meeting people that you really wanted to work with and you kind of ended up on this idea and kept working on it and it just kind of kept going? Is that how it it happened?
1: No, I mean, it started like uh, like it started in recognizing that there was a problem here. Right. And, and that like, if I could solve it, that, that would be useful. Um, and then, you know, it was very tactically it started because I connect with a group called Stanley park ventures. And they said, you know, we'll put in the first 150 K if you can raise a million bucks. I simultaneously had to get a contract with, uh, at the time visa now mastercard, but you need somebody to do the deal with, and then you need an employee contract. Uh, and then you need a bank, somebody who's going to take the money for you. And so like, it was me and these investors kind of working and I was shuffling all four of these things together in lockstep. Um, and eventually, like, I think within, you know, with pending the contract closing, we got the million bucks, pending the million bucks, we got the bank deal, pending that million bucks we got to hire employees. And so it was just kind of like a bit of a, a horse trade to get all these things over the line. Um, one of the things that, that might be useful for some of your listeners, uh, and this is still on my LinkedIn, if folks wanna go look at it, it's called how we used 1K to raise 1 million. And like the biggest risk that we had recognized in this business was customer acquisition or do people objectively care and everybody goes and asks their cousin and their aunts and their nephews and they'll be like yeah that's great you should go do it but that's that's not objective and it's not even particularly useful what we did was we like here's 20 customer experiments that we ran with 20 bucks each and like we picked then picked three winners and then we spent 200 bucks on these next three experiments for ads to determine whether or not somebody would like come to our website click on a funnel, give us their address, that kind of stuff. It was like purely vaporware, but it let us go back to the investors and say, hey, our cost of acquisition is seven bucks. And like, here's a statistically significant way to prove it. You know what I mean? Like people objectively want this. And so that was part of kind of the story of um, de-risking kind of what we thought was the key risk to the business.
0: I'm curious with those experiments, what was one that was kind of, that is most memorable and, and was really kind of even maybe surprised you a little bit
1: i mean it wasn't in the so it was interesting (laughs) i don't think i've talked about this publicly before it might get me in trouble there there wasn't much in the paid stuff that we found was like that's that's just like a b testing a bunch of different ads what we did do there was a bank in the united states um called simple at the time it's now defunct or whatever was we put on simple shirts and we like use their app and iPads and then like, Hey, would you sign up for the service just to like see if people talked and engage? And so I think we probably sent simple, like 15 useless Canadian signups that day, but we did do some of that kind of stuff just to be like, you know, do do people actually care? Because, you know, it's going to be a long hard slog to build this business. And the last thing I want to do is spend a bunch of time and energy on it and then find out that nobody cares. You know what I mean? Um, so that was maybe one of the more non-traditional things that we did.
0: What did you find that people cared about those early days? Like obviously, there's some some other you know challenger banks, neo banks, whatever you want to call them out there now. But you were one of the first and started quite early in the space. So what did you really notice that sure. people were chall- like challenged with? Like obviously, everyone always com- complains about the big five, big six banks. But what were some kind of Simple challenges or problems you thought you could solve quite early on?
1: Yeah, so uh, I'll answer. So I think there's kind of like an emotional answer here, and I think there's a tactical one. So emotionally, what I would distill it down to is like everybody, to your point, is like apathetic towards their bank. But everybody, I think, does not feel like their bank will actually proactively or at scale advocate for them or operate in their best interest. Like it's a consistent erosion of trust is the relationship between a bank. So emotionally, can you communicate a product that helps folks feel like we're, we're actually here to help? And you know we're here to help because we think it's the right way to do to build a business. Like we're not missionaries purely, but like can you actually establish a relationship of trust with users by doing things like building in public and showing like the warts and all, the, all those different kinds of dimensions. So there's, there's one component of it, there's like articulating the mission in a way that builds you the empathy with users in a very tactical sense. What we kind of did was like one third of this country uses Interact Debit and nobody in America knows what that is, but you will, right? And so Interact Debit is like, can't really be used online, cannot be used outside the country. This is changing, but uh, give me credit for it was 2015 at the time, you know, 2017, I guess, by the time we launched. Um, and you know, often has high bank fees and often has high per transaction fees with no cash back. Right. And so it's like, it's not a great experience now it's changed a little bit, but what we did was we took a visa prepaid card and we said, that's a bank. Like if we do a, B and C and build the infrastructure around this thing, you can have a full bank experience with a visa prepaid card. Um, and so we shipped that and the big things that changed were you're obviously not getting charged bank fees. Um, you can use it outside the country. We made some product improvements, but the first product that Coho sucked. Um, and then, you know, the big thing though, is that we got 150 bips of what's called interchange, which is like basically the fee that a merchant pays to accept your card. So that means if you spend $100 a hundred bucks at Canadian Tire, they're actually only going to receive 98.50 and the bank, the issuing bank will receive a dollar 50. So what we did was like for the first time, because we were getting this interchange, we were able to give people cash back. And so now these debit users, which is one third of the country, didn't pay bank fees. Um, got half a percent cash back on every transaction and could use it outside the country. So that was kind of the initial wedge. And obviously it's evolved since then.
0: And that's the initial wedge. And you have grown that extremely successfully. How did you go about understanding like what are other pain points and how did you determine, hey, like this is the next thing we should do. Were you listening to uh, your customers and their pain points? Were you going based off of data? Or did you kind of have a product roadmap that you were like, going to roll out no matter what so we did a couple things our roadmap was and is public
1: um, and so we actually had a public user roadmap where they would comment on it and 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 help us and that was certainly part of it Um, you know it is it is both a strategic and a it's a triangulation across the three things that you alluded to it's like what is the data telling us what is the strategy of this company and then what's the mission of this company you know what i mean and so um one of the things that I don't think is unique to coho but i think is rare is like the better are we at executing against the mission the more likely we are to succeed meaning rbc has one hundred twenty thousand employees and if we roll out with the exact same product suite they do we will lose like full stop so you have to ship value as a function of being successful when that value is compatible with the mission um and so the public roadmap was one you know i used to do a lot of user chats i've still do user interviews um to try and stay close to the product so i've you know i think i've done four of those this month um the 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 kind of where all those things landed was like if there is a bright line in behavior and the the challenge is when we talk about banking it's like a very broad term but like your banking needs are probably different than somebody who's a fisherman making 40k a year than somebody who's living on bay street making 180k a year Like so, so it's a very broad term. You know what I mean? And so what we recognized is, if there is a bright line, it is the folks who are living paycheck to paycheck versus the folks that are savings. And about half of this country is living paycheck to paycheck, and those are a the most mission aligned users that we can help, and b the folks that banks are doing the poorest job of serving. I think if you make 200k a year in Canada, banking's expensive, but it's pretty good. I think if you make 50k a year, banking sucks. Um, If you talk about NSF fees and all these different kinds of things, so. Um, that was kind of the thing. And then, so that brought us through to then the roadmap today, which is like, how do we give you short-term dollars? Should you need them, uh, for cheap? And we've done some really interesting things there. How do we help you build and improve your credit score? Assuming you exhibit the right behavior and like educate people. Cause of, um, how do we get you paid every day? Like the fact that, you know, half this country's living paycheck, you only need to drive around any city to understand how many payday lenders they are that just shouldn't exist. Right. Like very often folks are going to payday lending despite the fact that they have like a 60 hour asset at their employer that they just can't access. And so they end up borrowing really expensive. Um, and so those are kind of like the financial foundations. And then next year we'll get more into the world of building wealth and, and kind of as these users graduate growing with them
0: with, with that group of folks there, I I guess, I'm curious from, you know, you you talked about the interchange there and being able to make some revenue from that space. Um, And then the market you're kind of targeting, how do you have that balancing act of, you know, providing tremendous value and a fantastic product and service versus, you know, making a sustainable uh, business so that you can continue to provide that service?
1: Look, it's hard. Um, I think it's less hard at Coho than it is at a lot of companies um, because I just think like if you're going to take a big swing and, and we're, I think we're taking a big swing. Uh, you have to think about this from like, how are we going to shape a generational financial outcomes? And that means that you take long-term bets, not short-term bets. Um, and like an example of a short-term optimization is like, let's charge two bucks for an e-transfer. Cause you know, whatever, some percentage of our users are using them 30 times a month, right? Um, so we try not to do those kinds of things. Um, but of course there's real pressure there. One of the internal heuristics that we find useful is when we're bringing other products to market is, would we be proud to recommend this to somebody we cared about? And if you would, then you're probably on the right direction. Um, but by the way, we've also had like, you know, when we started charging for things at all, there was people at Coho who were not happy about it because they wanted to build a free product forever. And it's like, life doesn't work like that. You know, you have to build a business and you have to figure out the combination of building the business. So you're creating the user value in conjunction with the shareholder value. And that means trade-offs and articulation and debate and like, you know, their crypto was a, it wasn't, is a hotly debated item less so now, but you know, you gotta, you gotta like think through, um, these kind of things and it's, there's no, there's no formula. It's just a, it's just a bunch of cultural rehashing of, you know, what we think is the right decision over and over again.
0: like let's take the, the credit builder platform. And kind of like maybe dive a bit deeper into that. So, I guess historically, you know, like if you have a better credit score, you have access to more things, mortgage, all these advantages, you know, credit cards, all the reward points that you can get from those. So, I guess what was the thought process there? Like, what were the big banks missing out on? Were they just kind of going off credit scores when there's actually a large percentage of the population that, if you just took a different lens and looked at them, could actually, you know, be have decent credit as well. So how did you kind of like look at that product?
1: Yeah, it's 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 two fundamental questions, right? One is like, is credit score reporting accurate? Which is a different question and an interesting one. The other question is, is can you improve behaviors for folks such that they have a credit, credit score within the existing framework? So it's like an expand versus optimize question. Look, like if you think about the traditional playbook for building credit, I think it's fundamentally broken and backwards, meaning what the kind of the core playbook is you go and get a credit card where you're getting 18 to 20% unsecured debt, one third of which rolls over for people, which is like super expensive, which puts a lot of people into debt spirals, bankruptcies, puts them in bad positions. And then once you do that, you go get an auto loan or maybe a mortgage. Okay. Like, cool. Credit cards, I think, are a fundamentally broken entryway for those reasons, and mortgages are out of reach for 60% of this country at this point. Um, And by the way, we don't look at, did you pay your rent on time? What is your, like, we don't even look at income. We don't, we don't look at you've had a steady job for the last three years. We don't look at whether you pay your cell phone bill on time. Like, like we can report, sorry, cell phone is, but like utilities, all these kind of things, which is like, look at rent reporting, look at utilities, look at proof of income, look at all these different things, which would be much more behaviorally relevant of the key question, which is, should we lend, you know, Evan $50 or not? Right. And so that's like the challenge with traditional credit scores. The, what we've done at Coho is like, I, I don't know what your financial literacy growing up was, but like, if you come from a affluent family. Odds are you were explained what a credit card is and you know, how credit card works and what APR means and all these kinds of things and how to build a credit score and you should use one third of your utilization and pay it back on time every month, but like huge percentages of the Canadian population just don't have that exposure and that education. And so what we tried to do is just like, let's use technology to do this, which is to say, here's like what a good credit behavior looks like and. You can manually do this stuff anyway by just setting auto deposit and auto payment, and we just took that process and simplified it using technology. Such that, like, how much do you want to utilize? How much are you going to draw? When are you going to repay it back? And we just do that work for the customer with technology, which is hopefully what a you know a credit educated person would do anyway.
0: It's an interesting point you bring up with the financial literacy there. I guess to most industries, even like telecom or anything like that. Financial literacy is so important. The educational component of Coho. So how have you really tackled that? that? Articles that people can read, is that if they're going to use a feature, there's like an explanation around that? How have you really kind of baked that into the product?
1: Yeah, so um it's a few things. Yeah. So we obviously publish a lot of materials on this kind of stuff. Um there's active campaigns within all of these products on how to use them and, and not to use them. Um Uh, we have a financial coach at Coho. So as part of like these credit products, you get access to a financial coach. So if you want questions, you can go get those questions answered. Um, and so, you know, I think, but, but look, the the primary thing that's like, we have, um, a number of savings tools at Coho goals, roundups, power-ups, like things that just use the basic psychology of paying yourself first. You actually just have to use technology to do the heavy lifting for folks, because I think everybody has good intentions around this stuff but it's really hard to choose to save every day or it's really hard to like consistently choose to pay your credit card bill every month but if you automate that people only have to choose once you know what i mean and so we just like focus on making that automation better it's the same psychology that applies to dieting which is like don't put a bunch of unhealthy food in your fridge and then choose willpower every day to not eat that unhealthy food just like keep the unhealthy food out of your fridge do you know what i mean and so you're front loading the choice framework such that folks can, like, they don't have to choose every day if you do it right with them.
0: With the kind of instant pay product there was, was that a move? Is there kind of a B2B component there? Is that just, you know, any coho user can yeah. access their, their, their pay at any time? Like, what, what did that relationship look like? And I guess, you know, what was the problem that you're solving there? Like, I guess I've never firsthand had that. Issue of like ass- accessing my funds earlier, but maybe talk through a little bit about that space.
1: Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah. So, w- yeah, it is a B2B product. So, we have a relationship with ADP and some other folks who basically, um, Evan, you're getting paid every two weeks. We know that you've been paid and that you're working and that you showed up for work Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And here's how we verify that, which means we know that you know, this Friday, you're going to get a paycheck for 2,800 bucks. Okay. So like what that is basically doing is we're able to advance you capital because we're securing that capital with the, with your labor. Right. And so if you think about the idea that like, sorry, I have a dog (laughs) rolling into my office, we might have to edit this. Okay. We
0: can take that question again if you want, or
1: we can just yeah, let, let, let it roll. Let's let it roll. Um, like and so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's let's let it's all be real. Um, what I anyway, what I'm, what I'm, so like notionally, you have like this sixty-hour labor asset that your employer has that you just can't access. You know what I mean? You might be short four hundred bucks, but your employer actually owes you two thousand dollars. And so, um, you know, like if you look at the data on this, like. You know 30 40 percent of folks have like financial uncertainty injected into their life multiple times a year and you know they don't have emergency funds and all these kinds of things right and so then they go to some payday lender and borrow at really expensive costs and so because we know with perfect certainty that you're going to get paid on friday we can advance you that capital for free uh you know what i mean because we know that the capital is getting backfilled. so that's the idea with early pay um still scaling, still learning, you know, some things are working, some things are not. But uh, I think fundamentally the thesis makes sense that like a one day pay cycle is better than a two week.
0: pay And cycle. earlier you mentioned a little bit about kind of wealth tools and that focus into 2023. Um, you know, if things are confidential for sure, but do you mind sharing a bit about like what those wealth tools will look like? I know like obviously wealth simple is out there and you can invest in ETFs through your yeah. bank. Like, like, I guess are you looking to build a wealth tool that fits more of your consumer profile?
1: Yeah, I, look, I don't think we're I don't think we're looking to um, uh, you know do something brand new here. Like I think folks need a way to like invest in retail stock and 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 uh, ETFs and those kinds of things. We already have you know high interest savings accounts today that will soon pay four percent for those in like the the upper tier of Coho or I think one and a half percent if you're on the free version. Um, and so, you know, uh, that's important. Um, but I think the way that we kind of think about this writ large is the banking is this beautiful flywheel where it's like, you know, if we have your core account and then we can also bring you a great trade account, then that will a, let us like consolidate that experience for you. But B it will also give us, since we're already have where your paycheck lands and all this other things, maybe we can advance you funds. With more security, or maybe we can give you cash back on the transactions that you're already doing because we know that you love Tesla stock. Or, you know, you get all these kind of like interesting emergent properties that that come out of these kind of relationships. So that's like the maybe attack plans. Or the big thing is like we need a way for folks to build wealth beyond savings accounts if we want to grow with this generation. Like we have twenty, thirty goals, and twenty, forty goals of this company. We we plan on building this for a long time. Um, and as you know, Gen Xers and baby boomers pass their wealth to this generation, you need to have some tools for them
0: with Coho now, with you know, over 500,000 customers and users now. I guess, how have your product decisions changed? Uh, we talked a little bit earlier about you know, how you have like your product roadmap and your everything working together there. Um, is do you view things differently. Do you will you test features with a small percentage of those users and then roll them out broader? I guess yeah. I'd love to see how you know we I, I've had a few founders on and we talk about, you know, how to roll something out to, you know, 10, 20, 100 users, but what do you do when you have five hundred thousand plus?
1: Yeah. Yeah. We're close to I we just north of eight hundred thousand um now. Uh Look, I think I think that it becomes much more systematic, meaning there, there's kind of two questions, right? You have to, so the way that we've structured this is like, I think velocity trumps strategy. And what that means is like, we don't know what the right things to do are, but let's assume that some combination of things are out there that are the right things to do. And let's just figure out how we get to those things faster, right? And so the the two things are, you have to empower your local product leaders to be like, you know the mission, you know the values, you go execute within the constraints of those things, but you tell me what to build, right? And why you think we should build it. Because otherwise you don't really scale, like the best decisions are made by those that are closest to the problem space. And so like pushing that context, accountability, responsibility down on those folks and you tell me what to build and then you give them the the full resources to go do it is like one thing. So, you know, the, the second part of that is like, we treat experimental velocity as a product as a, as a velocity construct at Kohola. So like, meaning it's actually just a pretty good proxy for how quickly we're accumulating information. And then once we have that information, we'll probably make the right decision or more often than not make the right decision. Um, and so really building the infrastructure such that like, you know, we're going to run 45, uh, experiments in Q4, you know, and like next quarter should be higher and then we have a lot of rigor and process and systems around those experiments. So like, as you get a little bit bigger. It's less about what did we learn from this experiment than it was like, do we have a scalable engine to run experiments on mass? And Duolingo is probably better at this than any company. They run like four hundred and fifty experiments a quarter.
0: Very interesting. Um, I, I like to also maybe chat about the um, size of Coho. So you, you mentioned they're around eight hundred thousand customers and growing, um, with a team of roughly just over two hundred. Is that correct? So we're we're two fifty. We're about three fifty
1: if you include uh, which we do user success. Which you
0: know even at three fifty is quite a lean size team for the amount of users you have. Is that by design? Is that just been how you've grown over time? I guess if you look at you know Wealthsimple, Neo Financial, other fintechs out there, they have you know close to a thousand, thousand plus. So how have you maintained you know a tight team with a huge impact? Yeah.
1: Look, it's 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 hard. Um, I am firmly of the belief that bigger teams do not equal more velocity, and very often e- equal less velocity. Uh, yeah, and so, but it, look, it's it's hard to operationalize that because the natural outcome for every person when they're feeling overwhelmed is to add more people. But like, if you assume that most departments and businesses are running somewhere between forty to sixty percent efficient, which is I think probably true. Then you have to create the constraints for folks to like, have the creative outcomes to, you know, scale without just adding people. Um, it is not at all clear to me. And so that like, this is our internal posture. I never want to grow our head count more than 5% a year again. You know what I mean? Um, like, I just, I don't think it's, I would rather have a super lean, tight team of 350 than I would a mediocre team of 2000, even if the headcount count term was the same, you know, like, I actually just think that it actually is counter to building a great organization. And it's, and I think in the last kind of three to four months, it's been revealed, like it's, it's the worst kept secret in tech that like all the big tech companies are, have three to five times more employees than they need. And like the CEOs of these companies know that, you know what I mean? And so I'm trying to like front load that and avoid some of that stuff, um, Rather than kind of like build and then grow into a headcount.
0: I know Coho also is you know added some really talented C suite and senior level people over the last year, year and a half. How do you go about adding that top talent? How do you get them to join Coho? What are you looking for? Whether that's an interview process or you are just getting to know oh, these shit. folks over time. I guess what are some of your tips and tricks for hiring and attracting talent? Yeah. Um
1: so talent begets talent, meaning like the first kind of like so our, our CMO was from Uber, he built their search and experimentation team from for three years. And um and then his valid him joining and then that validated for more and more folks and like we've continued and that's kind of like the natural evolution of talent. But what I would say is but the, my mind is there's like a two by two of everybody's career, and it's like Do you believe in the work or not? And are you paid well to do it or not? And so you believe in it and you don't pay well, you might be like working an NGO or a missionary, and maybe you're a fireman, a teacher, all that is wonderful. Are you paid well, but you don't believe in it? Maybe you're like an ambulance chasing personal injury lawyer or whatever. I'm sure there's good ones of those two, but you know, but you get what I mean, right? And so the best people go to that top right quadrant where they're paid well to do work that they deeply care about. Um, And so the mission is actually central to getting the talent that we have in coho and, and now yeah we built a wonderful executive team from bird spotify and uber and uh wayfair whatever um marquetta uh and so that that's a big part of it i think the other part of it is like i think i think it's almost impossible to over index on humility um i think humble people work harder i think that they cause less problems i think that they're more receptive to like acceleration they're less defensive. Like, so I, am a big indexer on humility. Um, and then, you know, the, the way that I lead all of these kind of interview processes is I say, look, false positives are incredibly expensive for us and for the candidate. So like, let's avoid that at all costs. And the best way that we do that is making sure you're not surprised by being really transparent. So like, Koho has a bit of a reputation for like, I had a board meeting last week, next week, the whole company will sit down and we'll go through those same board materials. That's like kind of a scary thing to do with 350 people. You know what I mean? I'm sure it has burned us in the past. I'm sure it'll burn us again, whatever. <laughs> like, But like, I think that people, when they feel like, I think that transparency helps people feel engaged in the broader context of what they're doing and feel like they have they get to put their finger on the dial. You know what I mean? Like it's it's not some opaque monolithic organization that you're working in. Here's how the things that you do impact the bottom line, which then impacts.
0: I like that thread of transparency because you can see that transparency, you know, you're looking at that for people that are joining the organization. That's how you act as a leader of the organization. Then it's also reflective of the product and how your customers interact with Coho. So I guess, you know, like how important has transparency been for you? And do you think that's one of the most powerful things that's added to Coho as a brand compared to You know, if I look at my relationship with RBC or BMO, uh, it's a black box.
1: Sure. Yeah. Look, I I think you get, I think a couple of things. As you scale, you move from a culture of like transparency to context because the company generates some amount of information and then that notionally like grows exponentially over time. And so you kind of have to like, we were originally like, here's everything. And now we try and be a little more nuanced and be like, here's the things you probably care about, you know? So there is like a contextualized component of transparency, but I think it's, I think the big thing is, it, especially in a remote world. And like one of the things that the values that that we have uh, is just like anti-cynical. It, it's so intellectually lazy and so easy to be cynical and transparency is just like in many ways, the antidote to that, because you can just go get the information. You know what I mean? It's so easy for cynicism to fill and I do like for all of us, it's just human nature to take a narrow interpretation of some outcome or some decision or something that somebody said. And so like one of the antidotes to that is, is transparency, because um, I think cynicism kills companies. And I think it's really hard to keep it out of companies, but I think it's super important.
0: What are some ways that you've been effective at adding transparency? Because I guess a lot of guests I've had or people that listen to this podcast they're either starting a company or growing that company so is it something you kind of want to plant that seed early on and then you're always kind of curating and and growing that or is it you know like what kind of tactics have you used in the past
1: yeah so you know we used to do a lot of the traditional things of like ama by the way we do amas but um that is like one of the things that i think is important is we don't do anonymous amas at coho like tr with transparency comes with candor if you care about something care about enough to put your name on it the questions get higher quality it's an actual discussion and a debate now we as a company which will come to the second one have to create the psychological conditions for folks to like be able to put their hand up and, and challenge me which is like a scary thing to do is to challenge a ceo or their manager or whatever um and so like one of the things that we do uh is we have coaching at coho we've always had coaching at coho um so our 40th high like we had external coaches and then our 40th hire was a full-time coach um we now have three full-time coaches at coho and so these folks are one of the many benefits they provide is they can support evan when he's saying like hey i need to have this tough conversation with my boss and i don't know how to do it and now you have like a coach who can walk you through that and it kind of lubricates the information flow within the company you know what i mean um so that's thing one thing two is like walking the walk. We share board materials, financials, all that kind of stuff within the company. Um, I think, you know, thing three, I would say just very tactically is like, there's a lot of work that goes into this. So I have monthly COA AMAs now with about a third of the company. Um, I try and keep them smaller so that there's enough room for discussion and dialogue and not just like lobbing a question into the abyss. The week COVID started, I wrote an email every week to this company for probably 18 months. And now we rotate, I rate every second one and the manager will just rotate through departments. So cyber will write one and then I'll write one and then risk will write one and whatever. Um, So there's just like a lot of, a lot of work that goes into that stuff. Um, Yeah. Those will be the kind of things that that we do.
0: Uh, Your quote is saying we frame it internally as there's, there's a storm coming, but we're on a good boat, I guess with where the FinTech market is going, um, seen valuations cut, we've seen, you know, a bunch of layoffs at other companies. Um, but ultimately I see mm-hmm. too with, you know, inflation rising and financial markets declining, like I see almost a better use case for Coho for like everyday Canadians. So I guess um, it may be a big question, but like, I guess, like, where do you see this market going? Do you always see the need for kind of like a competitive fintech product out there, even though it's kind of a rougher market right now? Yeah.
1: Look, I mean, uh, coming back,
0: like if we if we think that we're building for a generation,
1: um, 25 years, this will not be the last one we deal with. You know what I mean? And so like, it's kind of an inevitability and I think it's probably a, in some ways a good thing. Like I think it was getting a little bit silly up there or like certainly not sustainable, but and it's easy to look back on bubbles and call them bubbles, but that was clearly a bubble. Um, so, you know, I, I, think a couple of things, yeah, it's, it's an externality. We got to manage through it. I think in many ways it creates a bunch of good practices and good clarifying principles in a company, if you're willing to like face some music. Um, I think the second thing is, you know, our business is, I would argue like largely counter cyclical, which is what you're saying. Like people are more paying attention to this kind of stuff right now. And so, you know, we, we continue to like well over double revenue year on year and continue to you know grow quickly. And so. We're seeing metrics which are supportive of of um that or validate that um you know it's 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 that you know you will like if you double revenue and market multiples half then you basically do a flat round you know what i mean and so like i'm not what that market looks like if and when we go back to market is kind of a an irrelevant externality and we'll deal with that when we come to it. But right now we're just going to build the best business for the long term, and like,
0: you know, control for what we can. Within <laughs> I, I that. love that focus so. on doubling down on the business. Um, I guess, how do you manage, like, I almost view it as two levers there of like the growth in terms of, you know, top line users and, you know, how much interchange you're collecting mm-hmm. versus also like how, how are those users interacting with the cohort product? Are they, you know, profitable for the business, are they using all the tools effectively? So, how do you kind of yeah. look at those two levers? Are you always kind of balancing them, or, or, or sometimes I guess growth is more uh, needed in the beginning? So, how do you kind of look at that?
1: So, it, it it actually kind of like waffles back and forth. Meaning, like when you first start a company, revenue growth is just like a proxy for whether people care. You know what I mean? And so, you initially start about revenue growth, and then what kind of happens is like okay maybe you're growing, but your economics are subscale or you're, it's costing you too much or whatever, and you're like, okay, how do we make these economics work such that we can, for every one customer now, we can have 10 and like, that's the path to building a great business. So then you kind of come back to the other side of like unit economics and LTV and some of these kind of dimensions. And then you actually kind of go back and you say like, okay, barring a this is when strategic optionality actually opens up in the business and it becomes super exciting, but it's like, do we want to continue to accelerate on growth predicated on these like pretty good economics, or do we want to take a slower growth path, but take our pretty good economics and make them great economics? You know what I mean? And that is like a business to, that will vary from business to business. And it, there's a lot of externalities there. Um, you know, like if you, and especially in this kind of market condition, right? Like you, you kind of have to think about it from the lens of like, so we have revenue growth, we now have this many revenue growth, so it's making us this much money, it requires this many users at this much money to recover, to cover an employee base and a marketing base of, you know, X and Y dollars. Um, and you start playing with the dials, you know, do we add like 50% more users at the expense of a higher burn this year? And what does that look like? And so, um. There is not one answer, but you actually, for the first time, have optionality once your unit economics are in the right place and you have the option to just basically change the slope of your business. I you love know? that.
0: I'd love to uh, jump into the quick fire round here. And uh, first question sure. is, what's the best book, movie, podcast um, that you've read or listened to or that you kind of always go back to?
1: Yeah. God, it's so tough because I've... a. Uh, I have a PDF I'll share with you, but of like all my favorite books. Um, cause I get this, I, I read quite a bit. Um, the two that come to mind as being, there's definitely some recency bias, but the one is, uh, what I would call the path between the seas. And this is a book by a guy named David McCullough and it's about the building of the Panama canal, um, which took 42 years, which basically toppled the French government, which created the country of Panama. But it's also, it's it's just like the best and worst of humanity. You know, one third of people basically, not basically, died building this thing. And yet also, you know, what it did to shipping costs, which then made goods more affordable, which then, you know, lowered world hunger. Like, it, it's just this incredible kind of story. Um, so that's one. Podcast, I would say, um, Sam Harris has probably influenced me more than any other person alive um i can especially in the early days i think he put two words a lot of things that i was probably feeling in ways that were much more articulate than i could um and that's not just across like meditation but across critical thinking and courage and a bunch of different kind of dimensions and so i mean i could keep going but those <laughs> those those are those are the two I love that i'm
0: gonna have to i I know it's quick fire. And I'm
1: feeling <laughs> miserable yet. I'm gonna it, have so. to get
0: that PDF from you because I'm always looking for new books to read, and mm-hmm. I'll check that out. Um, sure. Second question would be: What are you most excited about uh, in the next, you know, 12 months, next year? Whether that's you know, coho business related or even personal.
1: I have my second kid coming in March, so I'm I'm really excited about that. Um, Coho-wise, look, I'm excited about the clarity that this market brings. I think it's going to make us really focused. I think it's going to build a better organization for the next decade. So um, I'm not looking at the market as a negative.
0: Any similarities between having kids and running a a startup, a company?
1: Uh, Yeah, like, uh, look, I'm sure there is. Um, I found having kids to be like kind of a superpower because running a company is hard and my two and a half year old doesn't really care what happens. With Koho, nor, nor does my wife. Um, you know what I mean? So it's like, in some ways, I feel like you're a little more insulated and you get a dose of reality every day when you're playing with your kiddo, despite a board member being pissed or whatever is making the yeah, day challenging. Yeah, great perspective.
0: You know? you uh, to- final question would be, how do you deal with challenging and hard times? You know, being a founder, being a parent, what are some things that keep you grounded?
1: So... I, my, my kind of like little philosophy here is what I call like acceptance and enoughness. Um, and so acceptance is a just notion of like, I think that when we don't accept our reality, if a bad things happen, it's like a lot of this, at least for me, the turmoil comes from what is like actually implicitly not accepting it. And what about this? And if, and then it's just like, no, you know, acceptance. Um, and then enoughness is, it, it's akin to a Buddhist philosophy, but it, it, more around the idea of you have to let moments be enough or you will always be in pursuit. You know what I mean? And like, Naval has another way of putting it, which he calls like, there's an idea of like freedom to, I want freedom to buy this or do this, but you actually want freedom from, you know, like I want freedom from needing status or I want freedom from needing more money or freedom. And like, that's kind of akin to how I think about enoughness. Um, And then very tactically, it's like spending time with family, going to the gym, running nature. Love that. Those are my big four.
0: Daniel, this has been a great conversation. We've covered a lot of ground and thanks so much for your time and coming on.
1: Thanks, man. Great questions. This was fun.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe, share with friends, and reach out with guest suggestions. Make sure to follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and subscribe to our newsletter on Substack to keep up to date.